All right. Good to see you all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Grant, O Lord, that when we are tempted, we may resist the devil, that when we are worried, we may cast all our care upon thee, that when we are weary, we may seek thy rest, and that in all things we may live this day to thy glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Excuse me. Um, okay. Last week was a little bit of a crash course in the Ten Commandments. Do you have any questions about that? About, about the Ten Commandments, about the, the gospel side of the Ten Commandments? Or as Luther would say in the uh, large catechism, the promises, there, are, there is condemnation and there are promises all in the Ten Commandments, or the better way to think about them, the Ten Words. The Ten Words, because every word works two ways. So any questions about any of that? Okay. Uh, so we're still talking about the word, but if, if, you're, if you want to, you are here for today in the liturgy. We're not at the readings anymore. We're at the creeds. And if you don't know what the creeds are, there are three, what we would call the ecumenical creeds. There is the baptismal creed, which is the Apostles' Creed. That's the shortest of the creeds, short and succinct. Generally speaking, this is what we believe. There is the Eucharistic Creed. So if you come to church here and you have ever wondered why we don't say the Apostles' Creed during the service, this is why. Because the Nicene Creed is the Eucharistic Creed. So if you are having the Eucharist, if there's communion, then you confess the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed, again, deals generally with the things that we believe as Christians, but, good morning, but it, you're fine, but it also deals specifically with the nature of Jesus as being fully God and fully man and coming to earth and the work that Jesus does. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, why. And then there is the longest of the creeds, and I suppose to give the best title to that creed, it would perhaps be the apologetic creed. And by apologetic, I don't mean being sorry for, but speaking in defense of. And that would be the Athanasian creed. The Athanasian creed, which is attributed to St. Athanasius, and is the big long one. We'll actually look at that today in the hymnal. It's the big long one. We would typically say that on Trinity Sunday because it is a defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are what we would say are the three ecumenical creeds that span the years of the church. They're ecumenical because they are for every Christian. They are not for 
Lutherans or Catholics or Methodists or anybody else in particular. They are for the church at large. No denominational walls. And um, generally speaking, the way that the creeds are used then is because the Apostles' Creed is your baptismal creed, that's the creed that happens when you are baptized. If you are familiar with the baptismal liturgy, part of that is the pastor asking, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? It's the, it's the words of the Apostles' Creed, but put into a question. That's the creed at your baptism, and that is the creed that you are baptized into. It's the faith, and that's the creed that you confess every day, at least once a day. That's, that's the idea behind it, that part of your home devotions include the fundamental texts of Christianity, which would be you know, something like the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. If you have those three things, those are the very, very, very bare minimum of everything that you must have. The Nicene Creed being Eucharistic is the creed that we confess anytime the body and blood of Jesus are present. So if we're going to be having communion, we confess our faith not with the baptismal creed, but with the Eucharistic creed. They say things differently, but they don't say anything different one from the other. And then when we are really looking at what we think about God, the Athanasian Creed is the creed that we use. And there are a lot of people that don't like the Athanasian Creed. One, because it is long. <laughs> and two, because it is not succinct. It is not the uh, bullet points of Christianity. It is not things boiled down. It is very in-depth and it is incredibly redundant. So people don't like it because it's redundant. I've already said this. Yes, but the point is, when you say the Athanasian Creed, when you get to the end, there will be absolutely no questions about what it is you actually confess as a Christian. That's the point. It is airtight, and to be airtight, you have to be redundant. You have to say exactly what it is you think and exactly what it is you don't think. There can be... Uh, there's a term that I use, the choir knows about this, but it, the term is idiot-proofing. And that comes from the years where I was playing in, uh, I was doing pit work as a musician, playing for show companies and for operas and for operettas in the pit. And those were my mercenary days because those were the days when I'd get three or four different offers for gigs a week and I would sit on them and wait to see how many I would get and then pick the one that paid the most. <laughs> Not my finest years. Morally, financially, pretty good. <laughs> uh, but when you play in an opera pit in particular and you play the French horn, which I did, you are unlike the rest of the brass players who get to sit around and joke and play cards and do nothing else really during the whole performance and rehearsals. You actually have to play a lot. In fact, you play so much 
And because you play the French horn, you have so many different keys that you have to transpose into that you can never remember. By the third or fourth number, you've already forgotten what key you're supposed to be in, where you were. So we would have to take our giant scores and spend an afternoon going through and after every single measure of rest, write in what key we're supposed to be in. Anytime that there was ever a question or the potential for a question, you'd eliminate that by writing something down so that you had no questions and we called that idiot-proofing the music. So there was never a time where you'd pick up your instrument and go, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? You always knew. And the, the Athanasian Creed in particular idiot-proofs the faith. Now, I'm not saying that you will look at the Athanasian Creed and not have any questions at all, but you won't have any questions about what you're supposed to think as a Christian. And that's the redundancy. So, we're going to start all of this big discussion about the creeds. We need to go back just a little bit to baptism. Because if you remember... We asked the question, why does the church baptize? And the answer was, do you remember? Why do we baptize? It's a really, really easy answer. Because Jesus asked us to. Yeah, because Jesus said to. Remember, what Mary says to the servants at Cana of Galilee... Whatever he says to you, do it. It's not just to those servants, it's to the whole church. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. So when Jesus says, all right, here's how this is going to work. I want you to go and you baptize. We don't say, yeah, but I don't really feel like it. You say, oh, okay, that's what we're going to do. Because you follow Jesus. And remember that to believe in Jesus is to submit to Jesus. What Jesus says is what goes. That's what it means to believe. So when Jesus says, all right, it's time to go do some baptizing, the church says, oh, okay, we're going to baptize. Yes, sir, that's the way it works. That's what we think now. Uh, Christians are very docile when it comes to Jesus. Whatever Jesus says goes. But then we are the very opposite with the world. We are not docile at all, or at least not supposed to be docile at all. Okay? So we baptize because Jesus has asked us to and because of how good baptism is. Well, you know, Jesus wants us to do this, but of course, yeah, we don't have any questions about it. Look how good it is, so why wouldn't we? Uh, the church makes disciples, which is the ultimate instruction that Jesus gives. I want you to go and make disciples through that baptism. That's the beginning of it, but what's the second part, remember? Baptize and teach. Teaching, yes. So the church cannot have disciples from those who are only baptized because they don't know anything. But the church also can't have disciples only from the people who are taught because one, you can never fully understand until you're baptized because you can't be in unless you're in. And two, you might know a lot, but you're not part of the family. So the fact that you know a lot 
doesn't really mean anything because you're not part of the family. So we baptize, we bring you in, and we teach. And the teaching is a lifelong thing. And then the question is, how does that teaching happen? Now, you can look and honestly kind of be a smart aleck about it and say, well, you go through our, you go through midweek catechesis or you go to the catechumenate and then you're confirmed and then, you know, then I've, then I've been taught. And that's really a silly answer because the teaching part goes on for the rest of your life. Baptism gives you the new life and the teaching is the rest of that. <laughs> the teaching is the living of that new life. It's, it's forever until the day that you die. I'll still be teaching you well. The Lord will still be teaching you while you are on your deathbed. That's just the reality of it. And the church teaches through the word. And liturgically speaking, that teaching manifests itself in the readings of the liturgy, in the preaching of the word, and uh, of course in the little classes where the doctrines are taught, what we think and say are taught, but fundamentally the teaching takes place in the creeds. What do you believe? Who is God? What has he done? So Lutherans like to talk about the small catechism, and I have tongue-in-cheek responses to the small catechism, but I also have very good things to say about the small catechism, one of which is it is a very good summary of the faith. But even the small catechism is essentially building on the creeds, because the creeds are the fundamentals of everything that you think and say and believe as a Christian. It is, in a certain sense, the creeds are, uh, in a certain sense, taking everything that God has said about himself in Scripture, boiling it down and distilling it, and then saying it back. And that is actually what, <laughs> that's what it means to confess the creed. So confessing the creed is different than confessing your sins. To confess the creed is to speak openly and publicly and to affirm, in a sense. And the word that is used means same speak in the Greek. So same speak means God says it first, and then you simply say back what God has said. You're simply repeating what God has said. So we say, what do you think about God? And you say, well, he's triune. But why do you say he's triune? Because God has already told you that. So you take the things that God says of himself, and then those become what you say of God. How do I know who God is? Because God has revealed himself to me. And we'll look at that in a minute. The church always teaches the same thing, and it's very, very important. I have said this before, privately and publicly in some cases, and I will, I will continue to say it until I have no more breath within me left to say it, and that is, the church is not progressive. 
The church moves forward in history, in time, and there are things that every generation of the church adds, but the church is a snowball. And the snowball started way up on the top of the mountain, and by the time you are born and hit by that snowball and sucked into it and are rolling down the hill, there's a pretty big snowball there already. And you add just a little bit, and everything that is good from what you have brought in will be kept, and everything that is bad will be purged. That's the way the church works. But the church is not progressive. The church is always regressive. Because the church is always saying the same thing. Not trying to figure out new things to say. Not trying to figure out new ways to present what has been said. But saying the same thing. And that gets the church into trouble sometimes with the world. Because what? We're behind the times. Get, this is 2023, friends. You really are going to say that something like homosexuality is bad? You backwoods hicks. You know, that's the, that's the attitude of it because you're not progressive. Look into the future and you say, I don't really want to look into the future. I want to look back into the past because that's where my Lord has come from and that's where he speaks and that's where the teachings are given and those teachings permeate from the past into the future. But we're not looking at things that are old and dusty. We're looking at things that are always new in their age. So we're not meant to be progressive. And typically speaking, when you look at a church that brands itself as progressive, it has actually departed from what the teachings of the church are. So the church strives to teach the same thing. I'm not teaching anything in the catechumenate to the church, you, that the apostles themselves didn't teach in their time. We're saying the same thing slightly differently, and I'm sure that the apostles didn't meet in a building with juice and coffee and treats, but we're saying the same thing. I'm teaching you the very same thing that they taught. And they taught it because Jesus said it first about himself. Okay? So, the pure teaching of the word, what the word says, what the word means, what we think about the word, is safeguarded by the creeds. And summarized, in fact, by the creeds. So let's look at this handout. I'm sorry, I haven't gotten a better graphic than this one, and this one's just a little hazy, but I like it a lot, and I'm sure that you can make it out, okay? So, the Word of God, and in this case we would say, you know, the revealed Word of God in the Scriptures, is the, the fundamental source of all Christianity. Everything that you know, everything that you think, it all stems from that. If there is something that has a root outside the Bible, it cannot be held as authoritative in any degree. The only thing that is the, the queen mother of authoritativeness, authority, is Scripture. The problem with Scripture, though, is 
You can make scripture say whatever you want. Who's the perfect example of that? Think about the Gospels, yeah. Satan. Satan. The devil knows the Bible way better than you do. <laughs> but not as well as Jesus does, because Jesus is the Bible. And so this Sunday is the first Sunday in Lent in Vokabit. And the first Sunday in Lent always looks at the temptations of Jesus going out into the wilderness. And how does Satan tempt Jesus? Tell him to turn the rock into food. Sure, 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 sure. But there's, there's a deeper thing than that. Sam? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture at him. You know, the Lord wants this for you. He said it himself right here. And Jesus' response to that is what, Sam? Jesus, Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, and Jesus quotes scripture, quotes scripture back, but correctly. Scripture can always be twisted and used against its intent. And the creeds of the church safeguard that. So if you have the creeds right here, you can have a vast array of interpretations, but at the end of the day, the confessions of faith, which are the creeds, this is what we say, those are the guide rails. So you, can be, you can be here on the road, you can be here on the road, that's all right, but you can't get off the road. The creeds are the things that will keep you there. When you begin to say something like, no, God is not triune, there's no such thing as the Trinity, then you have gone off the rails, literally, because the guide rails that are the creeds, which are the historic confessions of the church, which is to say, God has said this, so we distill it, and this is everything that we say about God, then those are gone. And if there aren't those things, you can say whatever you want. Pardon the language, but this is just too good a quote to waste. One of my dearest friends and mentors has said, if you don't have a creed, you can believe any damn thing you want. And it's true. If you don't have a creed, well, it doesn't matter. Then you have the, the, the world that says, well, my opinion or my take on that or my read or I feel and none of that matters. You know, I, people are always shocked when I say this, but the church actually doesn't care about your opinions. I honestly don't care what you think about the Trinity or what you think about Jesus' suffering and death. You know, as a human being, if you want to sit and have a conversation with me, sure, we can do that. But as a pastor, I really couldn't care less what your thoughts or feelings or opinions are. I really don't care. And you shouldn't care about mine either. Because the church is not a game about thoughts and opinions and feelings. The church is a game of confessing the faith. And what is the faith? Well, here it is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, blah, 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 blah. That's the faith. So let's look at this. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is really important. The word for keeping, uh, or excuse me, for as I'm delivering them to you is a word called paradidomi. 
in the Greek, which is actually the same word that is used of Judas paradidoing Jesus, handing over, passing on, giving to you what I have. So Paul has received, and then he gives the thing that he has received. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't change it. He said, this is what I have received, and I'm giving it to you. And then that guy takes and says, I have received it, now I'm giving it to you. I have received it, I'm giving it to you. And it comes all the way down to me, where I received it, and now I say, now I'm giving it. Exactly what was received is the thing that is given. We're not progressive about it. Yes? It's like an email forwarding chain. Yeah, it is like an email forwarding chain. And you better pass it on or you're going to get, you know, seven years of bad luck. That's how that works, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That money's not going to make it in there. 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There it is, according to the Scriptures. I'm not making stuff up here. And when Paul says according to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Christ died according, as, as it is according to the Scriptures. Oh, you mean the Old Testament talks about Jesus dying? Boy, howdy, yes it does. If it doesn't talk about that, throw it away and was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Well, that's a creed right there. What I have received I pass on. Second Thessalonians, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Again, Second Thessalonians, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. If they, if they break that, if they go off the rails, if they don't want to be bound, then they can live unbound. But the problem is if you live unbound, you will go wherever the wind blows you. This is a problem with a number of church bodies, but in particular some of the evangelical free churches. Now I have a, a, you know, I've got Scandinavian background, and if you know anything about the evangelical free church, that was big for the Scandinavians that came over, because they don't want to be tied down to any authority, but they also say, we don't want to be tied down to doctrine. And that's great until it isn't. The whole point of the church is that it is tethered. But once you cut the tether, you go wherever your whims take you and you run into the problem of the judges, which is every man did what he thought was best in his own eyes. And then it becomes a game about opinions and whose opinions are more valid. And I'm just going to settle that debate for you right now in a very heartless and mean fashion, according to the world. And here's how I settle the, bit, the debate. Whose opinion is the most valid? None of your opinions have any value, and therefore they are all equally garbage. 
How about that? <laughs> this isn't a game of opinions. Okay? And once it's turned into a game of opinions, you've, auto, you've, you've automatically lost. It's a game about what Jesus says and what Jesus thinks, and the creeds are saying back to Jesus what Jesus says about himself. Second Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Here's the reality. Who have you learned the faith from? You haven't learned it from a pastor. You've learned it, pardon me? You haven't learned it from parents. I mean, yeah, parents teach, pastors teach, but there's a, there's a, there's a deeper reality there. You learn from the apostles. The thing that the apostles preach and teach is the same thing that you are being taught today. The things that you're learning, you're learning from the apostles. Whose epistles do you read? Whose gospels do you read? The apostles and evangelists. That's what's still preaching and teaching. Uh, so here's the thing then about the creeds. If you don't have one, you can believe anything you want. But if you believe anything you want, that's not being part of the church. Faith is a very personal thing, deeply personal, but it's not private. It's personal, but it's never private. It's always corporate. It's always about the body. Your faith is great that it's you and Jesus, and when we have communion, you hear that, the body of Christ given for you. But you also hear it 78 other times to 78 other people. Because it's not just given for you, but there is that deeply personal relationship, but it's also given to everybody else who is here. It is a corporate thing. So your individual opinion doesn't line up with the corporate idea of what the church is. Faith is a personal thing, but it is never a private thing. It's not about me. It's not about you, it's, a, it's always about us, and really us in Christ, is what it is. So, uh, what the church says is what you say. And I want to look at a, a great handout here, because it's very important that you recognize this idea that faith is not a private thing when you confess the creeds. So, there's, there's one thing, really, that you need to understand, when you, when you speak the creeds, you know, the, the, first, the first thing that you say in the creeds is what? I believe. I believe. Credo. I believe. And who is I? That, pardon me? No, it isn't. That's the misconception, Mason. Thank you for springing my trap. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not I, as in me. So this is the thing I want you to really, 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 really think about. When you say, I believe, it's not you saying, I, Mary Lou Jackson, do solemnly affirm that I intellectually assent to God the Father Almighty that then you can say, hey, I'm pretty good, right, because, because I finally got it, and I believe it. 
I believe in God the Father. I don't know about him, but I do. If that's your creed, then who is your God? I is your God, and I am is supposed to be your God, not I. So the I there is actually corporate. In fact, the old language, what used to be, we believe. You'd go to confess the creed and you'd say, we believe, because you'd be saying it as a body. But it doesn't matter. You can say, we believe, or you can say, I believe, because they actually mean exactly the same thing. I is the singular that the church uses. I am the church, and I believe. And we are the church, and we believe. But it is not I, the individual. So confessing the creed is not you saying that you can understand and assent to and hold firmly to every single one of those points. What it is saying is that this is what the church believes, and I am submitting to the church. I never would have got that answer. <laughs> What the church says, I say. God is your father, the church is your mother. Yes, Sue? There's a children's hymn we used to sing. I, I am the church. Oh, you are the church. Yep. We are the church together. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the church is a corporate body. It's not a collection of individuals. And uh, so that's reflected in Confessing the Creed. So here's, uh, did you have a question? Yes. Yeah, it's a one it's like the the language of marriage is so important because it's not just about a husband and a wife, man and woman getting together and getting hitched. There's there's more to it. There's the language of the of marriage permeates every aspect. Language of marriage permeates your relationship with God. The church is Christ's bride. Uh there is the one flesh that when you come into the church, you don't cease to be your individual person, but you cease to have your individual person be your identity. Now you're a part of this body. You're a part of the body of Jesus. You're a part of the church. And what the church says, you say. Because what the church says is what Jesus says. Okay. So here's a great story. This is from William Willimon, who is a liturgical scholar. In a church history course in my last year at Yale Divinity School, the professor invited an Orthodox priest to lecture. He gave a rather dry talk on the development of the creeds. At the end of the lecture, an earnest student asked, Father Theodore, what can one do when one finds it impossible to affirm certain tenets of the creed? Now, I've already kind of given you a little bit of insight as to where this is going. The, the biggest problem with the question is the word affirm. The second biggest problem is the word one. What, can, what must one do? Or uh, how, you know, what, what, what does one do when he cannot affirm certain tenets of the creed? And I love this. The priest looked confused. <laughs> well, you just say it. It's not that hard to master. With a little effort, most can quickly learn it by heart. No, you don't understand, continued the student. What am I to do when I have difficulty affirming parts of the creed, like the virgin birth? The priest continued to look confused. You just say it. 
particularly when you have difficulty believing it, you must keep saying it. It will come to you eventually. <laughs> Exasperatedly, the student, a product of the same church that produced me and a representative of the 60s, that's not a compliment, <laughs> pleaded, how can I, with integrity, affirm a creed in which I do not believe? It's not your creed, young man, said the priest. It's our creed. Keep saying it for heaven's sake. Eventually it may come to you. For some it takes longer than for others. How old are you, 23? Don't be so hard on yourself. There are lots of things that one doesn't know at 23. Eventually it may come to you. Even if it doesn't, don't worry. It's not your creed. At that moment, I realized what was wrong with much of the education I had received. A light shone. I got saved from the 60s. <laughs> I thanked God that in my ministry, I was not being left to my own devices. I did not have to think for myself. Saints led the way. As a theological educator, I need to recover a sense of myself as accountable to the church rather than subservient to the academy. I need to listen to the church more carefully than to the alleged issues of the day. Only then might we, as leaders of the church, be given the grace to allow our people to rise above the merely contemporary and to engage in critical thinking worthy of the name. Theological education begins by being formed by the saints. That last line is also very important. Theological education begins by being formed by the saints. What did I tell you about this class? I'm not out here to teach you things. I don't care what you think or what you know. What I care about in this class is how you be, how you are, how you live. This is a class about spiritual formation, not intellectual formation. No, there's no tests. There's very little homework, and the homework that is given is not intellectual. It's not memory work. This is different from midweek, because this is not about what you know. It's about learning to be a Christian. It's about being formed. And the rest of the teaching that the church gives you, you know, baptizing and teaching, is not about head knowledge either. It's not about classes. Yeah, see, this is the thing, Mary Lou. Uh, this is why the church is for everybody, because you don't have to be smart to be a Christian. In fact, you can be a complete and utter moron and be a very devout and faithful Christian and a good role model, because it's not about intellect. Now, there are some really, really great, highly intellectual Christians but they aren't good Christians because they are intellectual. The creed is not your personal, individual assent. It's not about having integrity. If you, like the young man, really has trouble comprehending the fact that a virgin could conceive and give birth, join the club. Who doesn't? <laughs> you know, there's kind of a rebuke there, too. So you, have, you think you have trouble affirming the creed, huh? And you think that somehow you're the first person who's ever looked at the creed and said, 
I find that hard to believe. Get over yourself. It's not about you. I can't tell you how many times you have to hear, it's not about you. Your life is not about you. Your faith is not about you. Your church is not about you. The faith is not about you. The creed is not yours. It is ours. And when you say the creed, you are speaking back the words that are not yours, but the words that are your mother's. And your mother got them from Jesus. You're just repeating them. You're not thinking for yourself when you confess the creed. In fact, you might even be doubting the creed when you confess it. But that's the beauty of the creed, is even when you doubt, it works on you and it keeps you here. You might be over here, you might be over here, but it'll keep you there, it'll keep you on the road. You might not be the best driver, but you'll at least be on the road. So, when you confess the creed, again, I'm going to use this word, it is submission. It's you saying, this is what the church believes. And you want to make what the church believes what you believe. But like that priest said, Father Theodore, you might never get there. You might, on your deathbed, still not understand, and he descended into hell. You might, on your deathbed, still say, I really still just don't understand that virgin birth. And if you ever say that to me, I'll say, well, let's confess the creed. <laughs> you just say it. I love how confused the priest is. They're on two completely different levels there. One of them thinks the creed is his and that in order to say it, he actually has to really intellectually affirm that. I can't confess the creed if I don't personally believe in the virgin birth. Who cares about what you personally think? The faith's a corporate thing. You confess it corporately. The I is the church, not you. So when you say it, you're saying, I want to be a part of the church. This is what the church says, and this is what I'm going to say because the church says it. I might not believe it, but this is what the church says, and I'm in the church. So I submit to this. And the prayer is always that at some point, what the church says would become what you actually can intellectually understand. And you'll know when you hit that point. Because all of a sudden, it's like the thunderclouds have gone away and there is a sense of clarity that, oh, well, of course. But you might never get there. And that's okay. The faith is not a race. And it's certainly not one of the intellect. You might confess the, faith, or confess the creeds to your dying day and not understand half of what you're confessing. And guess what? It's okay. Salvation is not dependent upon how much you understand. That's the beauty of it. If it's dependent upon you intellectually assenting to the creeds, then that's works. Sorry, Lutherans. That makes it works. And I know what you think about works. They can't save you. So, the creeds are, let's look at the Athanasian Creed here. And actually, this is going to be in the hymnal at page 319. 
And while you're looking that up, I'm also gonna pass this out to you, which is not something I did, although I am jealous of it because I've always wanted to do something like this. This is the Nicene Creed, and every single line of the Nicene Creed has some scripture. This is not exhaustive in any way, but this is just an illustration to show you that when you're confessing the creed, you're not saying anything more than the, simp the simple things that God has already said about himself. God says, hey guys, I'm triune, I'm a father, I'm a son and a spirit, and you say, I don't understand that at all, but you're a father, son, and a spirit, and you're triune, okay. That's confessing the creed. Now let's look at this, 319. There are often two words that people will throw around when they argue about things like the creeds or about the Lutheran confessions even, and they will say, well, these are descriptive and not prescriptive. And what they mean by that is, they're just describing something, what it looks like, but they're not telling you how to be. And typically, the people who would say something like that are the people who want to try and get away with something. And typically that's their response when somebody points out, hey, now wait a minute, we're supposed to be like this. And they say, oh, that's just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us how to be. But I don't understand the difference between the two. And I would like for you to be as confused about that as I am. <laughs> Look, understanding is very often overrated. Sometimes it's good to be confused. And I'll show you. If a Christian is described as being kind, loving, generous, blah, 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 and you are not those things, you don't really meet the description of a Christian, do you? So then can you say that you are a, a Christian? Well, those are just descriptive. They're not telling me what to do. They're just describing what I am supposed to look like. Yes, they are describing exactly what you are supposed to look like. They're not telling you go and do it. They're describing what you are to look like. But what's the difference between that and being prescriptive? There isn't really a difference. If it's describing how you are to be, then it's telling you that you should be this way and that this is how you should look when you are this way. They're essentially the same. How can you be, how can somebody describe you or describe what they want you to do without also telling you that that's what they want you to do? I'd like you to go and to paint the room. And the way a good painter would do it is that they would do it in this order. If somebody told you that, now go into this room and paint it. And, and the way a painter would typically paint is like this. Pardon me? So you mean a wife telling a husband that? I'm not taking it to the personal level. <laughs> <laughs> the expectation is, if you are the one doing the painting, that the way it was described to you is the way you should do it. Oh, but that's just descriptive. Uh, well, you try that sometime. 
if your husband or your wife says, I'd really like it, you know, uh, blah, 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 describing this is how it should be, and you think, well, that she just described that. I'll, I'll do it my way. And then, and then you just wait and you see what they say. Uh, you, you wait and you see if that spouse is going to be happy and complimentary of the work that you have done. They're not going to be. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Because the description is the prescription. If, a, if the description of a Christian is like this, then it means that you should work to be sure that you meet that description. The Athanasian Creed says, the first line, whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. That's a little c Catholic, which means the universal faith, the Christian faith. This is the problem with Lutherans. Lutherans are afraid of the word Catholic. And how do I know that they are? Well, if you open the back cover of the hymnal, you can see... We'll look at the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. One, actually, let's just do the Apostles' Creed. It's easier. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. There is no more limp-wristed way to confess the creeds than to say, the Christian Church. And why do you say the Christian Church? Because you're afraid to say Catholic, because if you use the word Catholic, then people might think you're talking about the Roman Catholics, and God forbid that we ever talk about Roman Catholics. It's not like we came from them and want to be a part of them or anything. Oops, sorry, did I burst your bubble? <laughs> you know, some of the most diehard Lutherans are so convinced that the Reformation was about, like, being the prodigal son, but good. Give me that inheritance, I'm out! And that's not what it was at all. In fact, good Lutherans are supposed to still be sitting on those black garbage bags that were thrown out of the second story window to the curb, sitting there waiting to be let back in and trying to talk and say, hey, but, uh, uh, can we get a... Here's another thing I bet most Lutherans don't know. In the Book of Concord that you subscribe to, there's an article that says, if the Pope makes the necessary changes to the doctrine and gets us back to being faithful, we will gladly bow down and kiss his ring. When's the last time you ever heard a Lutheran say, I really can't wait to be asked to come and kiss the ring of the Pope? <laughs> Just putting things in perspective here. It's not really a war between us. So, the Catholic faith, in fact, I try to use that word to start getting it desensitized. Listen to the prayers when you come to church on Sunday. I pray for the Holy Catholic Church. There's a great church in Wheaton, Illinois, and the Catholics are jealous of it. Why? Because they are more Catholic than the Catholics. And the Catholics said it. Boy, you guys are more Catholic than we are. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> This year marks the, um, I've been a Lutheran as long as I've been a Catholic. Hey, well, congratulations. Well, there you go. So, you, you must, 
do this. And whoever does not keep it, whole and undefiled, will without doubt perish. And the Catholic faith is this. And then it's the creed. Here is all the things that we believe. The creed is telling you what to do. You must do this. But it is also describing to you what the church looks like. Uh, it's pre the creeds are prescriptive and they are descriptive. And look at these, you know, look how long this is for a creed that's pretty long. And this is what you say. Now, do you understand everything that you say with the Athanasian Creed? And in this Trinity, this is verse 24, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> Just say it, okay? It'll work on you. The creed works on you. All the words of the church, they work on you. You are clay, and every time you come back, they work on you a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. Always being worked on. You are always a work in progress. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to be a work in progress. Okay? Uh, At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account. Those who have done good will enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Well, how can you believe in something you don't understand? It all depends on how you use the word believe. Yeah, but what does it mean to believe? If belief is up here, like the academy, where you have to convince somebody rationally, logically, with facts and data and spreadsheets and citations and footnotes. You know, I like footnotes. I go to Conception Abbey pretty regularly to do my work. I spent a whole afternoon there working on one footnote, and it was glorious. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. But in, but in the academic sphere, the academy, that's how you must get somebody to believe. I have to make it so that it is worthy of your belief. But that's not the way that the creeds work. The creeds are submitting to it. The creeds are saying, ah, uh, yes, this is what the church says about God. Then I will say that about God too, whether I understand it or not. And you lose no integrity by not understanding. There's lots you don't understand. There's lots you don't understand at 23. There's lots you don't understand at 33. There's lots you don't understand at 53, 63, 73, 83. There's a lot you don't understand on your deathbed. That's okay. Nobody says you have to know it all. Nobody says you have to understand it all. Just hold it firmly. Don't let it go. That's the, that's the easy part. Um, questions about that so far?
Yes, sir. Why do we, why are we regarding the creed and not the council that made the creed or the, the body that had the authority to give us the creed? What is the body that had the authority to give you the creed? The church, in a sense, but there's some creeds that we consider ecumenical and some that some church bodies don't consider ecumenical. So, like, why are we, like, how do we know which creeds are the, the curves and which, um, and that the authority? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, anybody can write a creed. You can, you can write your own creed. And in fact, many pastors try to play cutesy and they'll write a new version of the creed to say every Sunday because you couldn't possibly say the same thing every week, could you? That'd get boring. So they mix it up, jazz it up a little bit. And nothing irritates me more than that for this simple reason. Nobody knows better than 2,000 years of church history 52 times a year. The creeds that we confess, the, the ecumenical creeds, came with the authority of the church in uniformity in these first big councils of the church where they came, the church came together and said, this is what we believe. And it has stood the test of time. That creed that those creeds have been passed down. They're part of that snowball. They have authority because they are rooted in what God says about himself. And they have authority in the fact that the church has deemed them important enough to pass down. What other creeds have that pedigree? There aren't any. This is kind of the funny thing. Uh, people sometimes get irked with Roman Catholics when they talk about we, we, we uphold scripture and tradition. And the Lutherans say, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. We are sola scriptura, scripture only. And then, of course, a smart Catholic would say, but where does scripture come from? Scripture is tradition. How do you know what the books of the New Testament are? They didn't come down from heaven on tablets. Not in this country, at least. <laughs> right? The New Testament didn't just, oh, look at that, the New Testament, everybody. Even the Old Testament was recorded, written, affirmed. The church has authority. And when we talk about inspiration, this is kind of where I'm going here. Inspiration doesn't mean just the working of the Holy Spirit that guides and directs the hands of the one who writes the texts of the Bible. Because we believe that the Bible is inspired, that is, the Lord does it. Inspiration does not stop there. Inspiration works in the councils of the church. How is it that the creeds become authoritative because they are inspired texts of the church. What about a sermon on Sunday morning? Guess what? Luther says those are inspired. That's why I'll never take credit for a sermon because nobody knows better than a pastor that if somebody gets something good out of his sermon, sure wasn't him. And the Lord kind of works to keep you humble on that too, uh, just as a tangent, because it always seems like 
the sermons I think are the very best and the ones I am the most excited to preach about get no comments or recognition at all. I just kind of wait. Like, well, that was a pretty good sermon. And people go, have a good week, have a good week. Like, but what about the sermon, though? That was a good sermon, though, right? Have a good week, have a good week. And that's the Lord crushing my pride and restoring humility. And then the weeks when I say, I've had one day to study and prepare a sermon because the week was so busy and this thing is hot garbage. And if I had had one extra day, I certainly wouldn't be preaching this, but it's what I have and I've got to preach it. And then people come up going, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. And you say, I don't know what I'm doing. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so there is the church that works and affirms and establishes that this is what the Lord has said, and this is how we have distilled it, and this is what we will say, and we will not alter it, and we will keep it this way, and we will pass it on, and that it becomes authoritative. And it is authoritative in the fact, too, that the church in council is inspired in her work. And then for us now, what's the difference between confessing the Nicene Creed from the council and confessing what Pastor John Kutzmer wrote that week in place of the creed. Well, one actually has historic backing. <laughs> one, the church has actually affirmed and said, this is what we say. The other is what John Kutzter said, we're going to say today. The other part of the churches or the church's councils that that births these creeds is it's not like they got together and said, well, you know, we ought to have some kind of creed, right? Well, we're not going to leave this room today until we come up with a creed. And then they, what about this? How, how about we believe in the Holy Spirit? What do you think? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, it's not like people are just getting together for the first time at the council and, and doing this. There is also an oral tradition that goes back before the point at which the creeds are formally codified and written down and said, okay, this is the formal language that we're going to use. The Christians are already saying all of these things in the creeds, but then the creeds are officially codified. Yes, we officially believe this because God has said it, and that is the mark of the tethering. So you can walk around saying, I believe, I believe, I believe all day long, but if nothing's tethered down, then it doesn't really matter. So the church says, yes, we, I, the church, the holy, Catholic, universal, Christian church, say this about God, and anybody who doesn't say this about God isn't a Christian. And anybody who does is, because this is what we say. You want to be like us, you got to walk like us, you got to talk like us. Does that kind of answer your question? And spawns more questions, but yes. It spawns more questions. Well, you know, that's how it works, isn't it? <laughs> uh, do you... Are, no, no, it can wait. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Then that's where we'll stop. We'll, fi we'll finish up with the creeds next week, and then we'll start getting in. We'll talk a little bit about prayer, which will be fun. And then we'll get to my favorite stuff, which is we'll start talking about the Eucharist. Okay? Um, so, let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If you want to take muffins home, do it. If you want fruit, do it. If you want container with some of the casserole, do it. Take it all. If you want that juice, take it home.